0: Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Grace Baptist here at Four Corners. Uh, For those uh, who are normal regular here, my name is Tony Alonzo. Pastor Tony, who is normally the pastor here, is with his wife away celebrating their 29th wedding anniversary. So that uh, in itself is pretty amazing and an incredible gift of marriage for those who are married. Uh, most days we say that is a gift, uh, and we'll say most days we say that is a gift, and other days it's helping us become better people. And so that's a great way to, for us to look at it. Um, so I'll be filling in just for today. Um, The other thing that we have to celebrate today, as we heard earlier, is Mother's Day, so we want to honor all of the mothers out there, and we saw an amazing video of all the different uh, ways that motherhood is given, so through adoption, through birth, through spiritual mentoring, uh, so many different ways that, that motherhood has Helped us to become who we are. Matter of fact, what's really great about mothers is without them, none of us would be here today. So that is a great gift that we are given. We are given life in one way, shape, or form or another. So that is 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 a wonderful gift for all of us. Uh, and so today, what I wanted to do is, is talk more about the gift and, and what makes great gifts. And we know that the gift of marriage can be wonderful. We know that life is a is a pretty good thing at least. Uh, um, and so. One of the things is that I've realized in in trying to unpack uh, God's greatest gift for us is what makes a great gift. What I've realized is that I am personally not a good gift giver. And my wife has realized this uh, over our years of marriage. And um, it's actually gotten to the point in our marriage now that my wife actually just comes to me and says, here's what I would like. And, And I just say, yeah, go ahead and buy that. And it's now gotten to the point that three weeks before Mother's Day, she had already picked out her gift, and she ordered it uh, and and everything. And my wife loves eggs in the morning. Do we have any egg uh, lovers out there? So my wife loves eggs. Uh, She likes omelets. She likes over-easy eggs. She just loves eggs. And so what she decided for Mother's Day is she would want some chickens. And now with chickens, require a chicken coop. And so we've had chickens in the past, but unfortunately all of our chickens have succumbed to raccoons. And that was a, a very, thank you for the y'all, um, that was a very sad day in our family. Uh, what was worse is, is what that did to my wife emotionally. Some people, like my kids, uh, mourned and they cried. Uh, my wife became the Terminator, got her red eyes, went and grabbed our arsenal. We won't go any further with what happened out there, but uh, raccoons are now scared of our house. <laughs> um, and so that, this was the gift that, that she had received. And what's horrible is that I didn't even help set up the chicken coop. I realized that my gifting is not giving gifts. My gifting is not handiwork. And I'm starting to really wonder, what am I good at at all? So if you guys could continue praying for me, hopefully God will reveal uh, why my wife even married me. Um, But during this process, I, I started trying to understand what makes a great gift. And what I came to the conclusion of is the greater the need, the greater the gift and so, as I was going through, I was trying to come up with these different ideas, and, and my oldest son is 13. Uh, for those that don't know me, uh, we have seven kids, so a large family, why we need a lot of chickens. Uh, so, uh, their ages is 13 to almost one year old next month, and so we have a, a large range. And so, my oldest son, his name is Christian, he decided that he was going to purchase a movie for us to watch as a family. Now having seven kids going to the movie theater is quite a daunting task. We have to take out a small loan, you know, to be able to do that. Uh, But what makes it a little more interesting for our family is our nine-year-old is autistic. And so if you've dealt with someone with special needs, having an autistic child sit in a movie theater for two hours is a daunting task in itself. Uh, one time we got to see Wreck-It Ralph, and the whole theater was empty, and he got to run around the whole thing the entire time, and it was it was a wonderful experience. But that doesn't happen every day. So so he bought um, a movie for us, and we all got to sit around and watch it. He bought the uh, Black Panther movie that came out, which was uh, an exciting movie. I love that movie. Um, I think mainly because I believe fi- five or six generations down, I have some Wakanda blood in me. Wakanda forever, right? So I got. So I believe there's something. That's why I feel like I relate to that movie. Now, my wife thinks I'm crazy, but... Um, and so that was a good gift. I mean, that was sweet of him to, to spend his money and to buy a, a, a gift for us like that, to have that movie together. But I realized that w- there's got to be something more to that as far as gift giving and, and the differentiation of different gifts. And so imagine with me if someone loses their job. I know I've had that happen to me and many of us throughout the course of our life will lose a job at one point or get laid off. And imagine that you have a family or kids, or even if you don't, but there's that weight of making sure you pay all your bills, and there's that weight of how am I going to make it, how long is it going to be between jobs? And what if someone, whether it's a friend or a family member or a stranger, it really doesn't matter, but comes to you and gives you the money that you need to pay for your rent or to pay for your bills? The gift here because becomes exponentially larger because your need was so much greater, and the weight that is lifted off your shoulders is is much greater because of that. If we take that even up another step, imagine someone going to the doctor's office and realizing that they have a diagnosis of kidney failure, and they're only given a couple of days to live unless they can find another kidney. And again, it doesn't really matter the point of who would be able to give it, but what if someone finds that they're a match and they're able to give a kidney that saves this person's life that is one of the greatest gifts somebody could give someone because at one moment you are faced with the reality that you may not live any longer and then the next second somebody comes and gives a gift that then allows you to continue living and so what I've realized as I've been going through and looking at gifts and the the failure of my gift giving uh, but then as gifts grow larger and larger we find that like I said earlier, the bigger the need the greater the gift and so today we're going to talk about the greatest gift in my opinion and that is the gift of Jesus that is the gift of salvation, the gift of eternal life um, and so that's what we're going to talk about today. And so if you have your Bibles with you, uh, go ahead and open them up. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 10. If you grabbed one of the Bibles here, it's on page 568. Uh, Ephesians is in the New Testament. It is uh, right after Galatians. You'll go through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Romans, Acts, and then you'll start getting into Galatians, then Ephesians. And so we're going to be camping out today. I think it says on the screen, Ephesians 2, chapters, or chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. But before we get into God's word and we open up and we discover this great and amazing gift that God has given us, I want to give you a quick disclaimer before we begin. Verses 1 through 3, if you've read them before, paint a very dark and dim picture. And if we only talked about verses 1 through 3, I would probably never be invited back to walk through these doors again. Because it is a very grim picture that Paul paints for us. But the reason it's such a grim picture is because Paul wants to show us how great our need is. Because like I said, the greater our need, the greater the gift. Uh, Have you ever... uh, an engagement ring or a diamond of some sort Uh, I got my wife's diamond cleaned uh, probably a few months ago and I sent it in they cleaned it and when they came to present it they placed it on the table and they placed a black cloth on the table and then they placed her engagement ring on top of it and the reason they do that is against the darkness in the black cloth the diamond really shines really well doesn't it and so what Paul is doing is that type of idea here. He's going to show us the dark picture of our reality, of our condition, so that when we get to God's gift, it shines amazingly bright. And so let's go ahead, and we're going to read verses 1 through 3, and then we're going to come back and look at those individually, each verse. So Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind now that's a that's a pretty dark picture that's being painted here, so let's take a look at this at the very beginning and Chapter 2, verse 1, it says, and you. You know who Paul is talking about here? You. Yes, everybody. Now, specifically here, correct, he's talking to the saints, the people at Ephesus. So he's talking to them. But at the very end of verse 3, he talks how he's comparing this to mankind. And so in the greater scheme of things, he is talking about the condition of everybody. So when he says, and you, we can insert our name in there and say, and Tony, listen, here is the condition that you were in. So the condition is, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, dead is a pretty strong word here. And, and it's very important for us to understand what does Paul mean when he says dead here? Because does it mean like, oh, well, we were, we were having a really bad time or we were going through a hard season? Uh, were we treading water and all we needed was a, a life uh, raft thrown to us or an inner tube given to us? What is our condition? And what Paul is saying here is no, we weren't just treading water here. We were dead. We were 20,000 leagues under the sea. We were on the bottom of the seabed and we were not able to even breathe or there was no life within us. Another way to make sure that this is the right understanding is we can go back into the Greek Now, the New Testament was written in the Greek. And sometimes as the Greek is translated into English, we can lose some of the nuances there. And so I went back to the Greek to see what does that really mean. And it really means dead. I mean, that's just really what it means. So we see very clearly that Paul is talking about spiritual reality here. We are spiritually dead in our sins and trespasses. Now, this is something that's sometimes very difficult for us to grasp. Because our Western culture has us thinking that we are, for the most part, good people. The number one thing that a street evangelist over in California would hear is when he would talk to people and say, why do you think you're going to heaven? The number one answer is, well, I'm a a good person. I'm, I'm good. And so when we compare to, say, the nightly news, I think most of us are pretty good. I mean, there's some pretty horrible things. I actually stopped watching the nightly news because it's so depressing. Um, compared to our co-workers, some of us would say, man, we're angels compared to our co-workers, uh, compared to our neighbors, perhaps. Um, we would consider ourselves, hey, we're, we're pretty good people. But is that who we're supposed to compare ourselves to when it comes to our spiritual realities? And what, what the Bible shows us is that that's not how we compare ourselves. If we compare ourselves to other dead people, We're not really finding who we really are in God. And so when compared to a holy, just, righteous, pure God, do we have a right standing with God based on works? What's the answer to that? Does anybody know? No, No, we don't. Matter of fact, Romans 3.10 puts it incredibly clear. No one is righteous. No, not one. So righteous means a right standing. So none of us are righteous. None of us are. So none of us have a right standing with God. So the answer is, no, we're not good. But let's just go ahead and and make sure that we're all on the same page here. And I'm going to use myself, so hopefully that'll make everybody all comfortable because you can make fun of me, and that's okay. Um, Using the Ten Commandments, just that alone of God's law. So if we compare ourselves to what the right standing before God is, not to anybody else, how am I faring? So the first one is have no other gods before me. So what kind of idols do I have in my life? Do I put anything before God? Do I play too many video games? Do I look at the gifts that God has given us and I make idols out of them instead of using those gifts to praise God in? So as I'm thinking through the different areas of my life, I've realized that there's been times that in my past that I put video games well above God. There's been times that I put my wife above God that I put my children above God. And see, these are things that we can do when we find our hope, our joy, our satisfaction, our peace, our everlasting of who we are in something that is not God. Even our wives, our children, even our work and money, all of that are gifts of God. These are things that we should point us back to God and celebrate with God about. So I know I've already failed there. Uh, Do not take the Lord's name in vain. If anybody has ever driven down 192 on a holiday weekend, um, we'll just leave. We'll just we'll just move on from that. Um, keep the Sabbath and keep it holy. How many times have I kept the Sabbath and and set aside one day a week to just be in God's word, to just just sing his praises, to set it aside and rest, knowing that I don't have to do anything today because God has already taken care of everything. He has set everything in motion. So I then get to enjoy his presence, rest in him, and just enjoy that time and take a Sabbath once a week. How often do I do that? I only know one that's ever done that. And that's Chick-fil-A. <laughs> Chick-fil-A every Sunday will make sure that they take the day off. And I, I feel for this body of believers because if you come out here and take a left, like two three blocks down, you've got a Chick-fil-A. And there's nothing that infuriates fr- me more than driving there on a Sunday. And then I really see where my heart is, is because I drive by there and I get angry that they're following God's rule of taking a Sabbath. So I'm not doing here. Then, then uh, number four says honor your father and mother, which is very appropriate for today. Uh, mothers, can I get a witness here? Amen. Okay. How many of your children have obeyed this at all times, at all moments? How many of us have obeyed that? I know I have fallen flat on my face numerous, numerous times, uh, constantly. Uh, you shall not kill. Now we're getting to a part where where some of us can say, hey, all right, I got this one good. I have not killed anybody, so I may be okay. But Jesus completely flips the script on us here and says that if we've ever looked at somebody in anger, then we've committed murder in our heart. I am a serial killer. Let's just be honest here. And this is not good. This is not, we shouldn't be laughing or having fun, but I have anger in my heart towards people all the time. We should not commit adultery. But Jesus takes it and says, if you ever look at a woman with lust, then you've committed adultery in your heart. Men, this is something that we do struggle with and have to watch ourselves. But it's not just men. Women struggle with this, too, when they have vampire movies and see shades of gray or things like that that can help. I'm just saying that these are areas that we struggle with. Um, You shall not steal. And most of us will think, "Of hey, we've done this, but... Many of us have downloaded music without paying for it. Many of us have done little things that we don't think is wrong. But God set his law up to say this is what we are supposed to do. Do not covet. Have you ever wished that you had something that somebody else had? I've done that all the time, all the time. I'll see something that somebody else has like, man, man, I really want that. These are just eight of the Ten Commandments, and I have failed miserably on every single one of them. So when someone were to say, hey, Tony, why would you go to heaven? If I were to say because I'm a good person, man, there's no way that this would be true. Because compared to what God's standard is, there is is nothing good in me. That's why Paul can say that in verses uh, 10 of chapter 3 in Romans. So we're just going to skip even the final two commandments. I think we've got the point. (laughs) So verse 2 says... In which you once walked, so you are dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. What Paul is saying here, just overarchingly, is that we were disobedient. We followed the world is what he says in the beginning. So it's so easy for us, especially in our time and culture today, to see the direction that the world is going and to see where politics is going, to see the direction that is happening and see how that when compared to what the word says and what God's plan for us is, we see the world is shifting and going a different direction. And many of us are very tempted to follow that direction or to say, oh, well, this is not so bad. This is okay. When God's word completely says, no, this isn't correct. We're tempted to to follow after Satan and not saying that Satan is indwelling you or anything like that. But Satan's role is the tempter. It's the deceiver. And we often get sidetracked and we often get deceived by what Satan is doing and his plans to separate us from God. We followed our own sinful desires. What Paul is saying that even inside of us, our flesh wants to pull us away from God our own sinful nature, our sinful desires that has been embedded in us, this disease of sin, that even though as believers we're no longer shackled to the chains that once held us in sin, we still are going to be constantly fighting every day the desires within ourselves to do our own way, to go apart from God. And we've got to continue to realign ourselves back to God, which is why a Sabbath is so important, to help realign our hearts and our minds, why being in the Word is so important. So we see that we're disobedient. And then at the end of of verse 3, it gets worse. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Frankly, we're doomed we are doomed we are children of wrath many people think of god and they say well his wrath was more of the old testament and his love is in the new testament and we see great greatness of love and we're going to see that in just a second but we were still in this state of rebellion against god we were still children of wrath we had god's wrath is aimed at us while we are in rebellion against him god cannot be with sin refuses to be with sin and so because of that, we are children of wrath, as Paul says. So we are, in this sense, doomed. And so if we were to end here, this is, this is our condition. But Paul does this on purpose. Paul wants to make as wide of a gap between who we are and who God is because the wider the gap is, the bigger it is, the harder for us to go from one side to the other, the greater we're going to see our need is. If all I have to do is jump from here to there, I still may not make it. But if all I had to do was that, we would say, hey, there's a good chance I can make it. But if I have to jump from here across 27, I have no chance. There's no way that I can physically do that. And that's what Paul is trying to say here. There is no way that you can physically make this jump to where God is. We need rescued. We need salvation. We need a gift that we don't deserve and that only he can give. So when we then move on, we realize that at the beginning, apart from, Christ, apart from Christ, we are spiritually dead. But with Christ, we are spiritually alive. The next two words, in my opinion, are the greatest two words in the entire Bible. And that's a pretty big statement, but I believe it. Verse 4 says, but God. Those two words should make us celebrate. That's why we sing praises. That's why we come to gather. That is why God should be number one in our lives in every aspect. It should course through our veins because, but God, because of all of this that we have done, but God made a way. Let's read what it does. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with us, and or raised up, raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That is really, really good news. The gospel is good news, and we see now why this is so good news. So we we see in the beginning, but God in verse 4. So let's unpack that a little bit. Being rich in mercy. Rich in mercy means, rich in general just means an overabundance, more than we need. For instance, two days ago, I was rich in waffles. I had more waffles than we needed for my children of seven. Today, I am broke with waffles. I have no waffles left. We could not have waffles for breakfast. But we are rich, meaning that we have an overabundance. That's what that means. And so here we see that we are rich because of God's mercy. God is rich in mercy. So he has more mercy than is needed, more than enough, rich in mercy, we see another character of God as we continue. It says, because of the great love which he loved. us, it's not just love. It's not just mercy. It's rich mercy. It's great love. We see that God is more than enough, more than capable to take care of our need. As we continue moving forward in, let's see, verse 5 says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, Paul goes back to reiterate, to make sure we understand our condition. Even though we were dead in our trespasses, we were made alive. He made us alive together with Christ. We were spiritually dead, and Jesus makes us spiritually alive. There's another time where Jesus uh, makes somebody that was dead alive. Does anybody remember his name? It was Lazarus. Absolutely. And Jesus says to Lazarus, come forth, come out, depending on whatever translation it's, it's no longer be dead. You are alive. Come forward. And that is what Jesus did through his word. And so that is the same power that raised Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus was dead. He was in the tomb. They was there. They rolled the tomb over. They were in mourning because he was dead. He was not coming out. And through God's word, through Jesus, made him alive. That is the same thing that Jesus does with us, that we were once spiritually dead. And because of Christ, because of what he did, he makes us alive. God raised us up with Christ in verse 6. See, Jesus died the death that we deserved. Because of our state, because of our condition, we, we deserve this death. We were not righteous. A righteous means a right standing. We don't have a right standing with God, but Jesus came and he lived the life that we were supposed to live. He was righteous. Therefore, Jesus has a right standing with God. Jesus also took on the sins of us. So our sins were placed upon him or imputed is the word onto him so that when he died, he took our death, lived the life that we couldn't live and gave us a path to have ourselves now a right standing with God. And the end of uh, verse six, it says, God seated us with Christ. The father sits us with Christ and we are adopted into his family. Actually, this wasn't in my message, but I'll do it really quick. Uh, on the way here, we were talking, uh, my three kids were talking about adoption. And we were talking about, uh, wow, that's sad that, that you know they were adopted. I was like, no, no, this is phenomenal that children can be adopted. Because they were once without, they were once missing something in their lives, and now they have a family, a mother, a father to come alongside them. And that is an amazing, glorious thing. And here we find that we ourselves are adopted. We ourselves have been invited into this family that we have no business being in. But because of God's rich in mercy, his great love, we are invited into this. And then God will dispense his grace forever to us in Christ, verse 7. Everlasting grace is going to be poured out onto us for all eternity. For all eternity, we're going to experience God's mercy, his grace, his kindness, his love. We're going to see that forever and ever. And this is an incredible, incredible gift. So with Christ, we are spiritually alive. And then verses 2, chapter 2, 8 through 10, we're going to find in Christ, we are God's workmanship. Let's read that now. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Salvation is a gift. Grace is is something that is given to us that we don't deserve. By grace we have been saved. We don't deserve this. This is not something that we have earned. There's nothing that we can do that, that would put us in an ability to have grace. Well, I did at least these things, so God should give me some of his grace. The answer is absolutely not. And so when we don't deserve something and then we're giving such a great and precious gift, we understand grace a whole lot more. No one can boast. We are given even the faith. And that's one of the things that I didn't understand for the longest time. For is by grace we have been saved through faith. Well, well, it's my faith. I'm sorry, I keep hitting that. It's, it's, my, it's my faith, so God's given me grace, but I'm going to use my faith to, to make myself saved. And it's like, no, you have been saved by grace through faith. And then what's the next part it says? It's a gift. You have been saved by grace through faith, and this is not your own doing. So why I thought that, I still don't know. Uh, It's a gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one may boast. This is our prideful, our arrogance. If we had anything to do with this, we would become arrogant because we could say, hey, this is our doing. We should get credit for this. We can boast about it. But Paul wanted to make sure that we all understood that this has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with God so that we do not have to boast with it. And this is something that's very important because there's a lot of false gospels out there, false good news, false religions that will take this and they twist this. They'll say, well, you need to do as much as you can and then God will take the rest. But you have to do, 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 and, and then God will take the rest. That's, that's completely against what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying it, it's, it is, has nothing to do with works in regards to your salvation. Nothing to do with your works, so that you can't boast. So then then why are we told to be good? Why why do we have to do good things? Or why does that even matter? Well, Paul's not going to leave us hanging here. He's going to address that. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. What does that say there? For good works. And this is incredible. I really listen to this. We are created in Jesus. For good works, which God prepared when? Beforehand. Beforehand. Okay, I'm the only one that's really excited. Felicia's got a smile on her face. But this is exciting stuff. Listen here. So God has rescued us. He has saved us by his grace, by his mercy, his immeasurable kindness. He saved us for good works. Okay, I've got to figure out good works. But he prepared these good works for us beforehand. Now what do we have to do? Walk in them. Okay, cool. That's what we have to do. God has done all of the work in saving us and rescuing us and providing a pace for our rebellion into his kingdom. He has called us into good works. And then so that we don't mess it up because we're really good at that. He says, I'm going to go ahead and prepare these good works beforehand. And all you have to do is just walk in them. Amen. Praise God. How awesome is the God that we love and we serve? And so what that really means for us in all of this is that the work of God is the greatest gift that we could possibly and ever imagine receiving. When we look at what Paul has said here, and we look at the gap between who we are and what we have done and what's required of us, and then we look at what we have to do and how far we have to go, we realize that we have a huge, huge, unimaginable need. And when we then see what Jesus has done to overcome this massive gap, that is why We can praise him. That is why we sing songs to him. That's why we gather together as believers. That's why we are inspired to go out into the four corners, the Disney, the Champions Gate, the Reunion, our neighborhoods, And share this good news because every person that we come in contact is on one or these other two sides of this amazing gap that we can't ourselves navigate. And this is what inspires us to go out and make a difference and to make a change and to share these things with the people that we come in contact with. And so Paul bookends this section and he says, here's the problem and here is the solution. We are invited to live on mission for the glory of God. He's prepared these good works for us, for us to do. We get to take part in them. We get to walk with Him. Now, just to make sure before we close this up, I want to make sure that I'm crystal clear in what this all means. Because it's, it's pretty clear in what Paul says. And, and we can just take that and be done with it. But I just want to make sure there's no confusing, confusion in any of this. What is being said here in the overarching picture? is that we ourselves are dead in our sins. We are spiritually dead. And so we need a Savior. We need to be rescued. Now, why is Jesus that Savior? Why is Jesus the one that does that? Well, the Bible says that Jesus is the Son of God. He is God in flesh coming down on this earth to do what we can't do. So he lived the perfect life that we were supposed to live. Which is why we can stand before God and be righteous or have a right standing with God. Because Jesus did what we can't do. And guess what? We can't do it. We're not going to do it. There is no way while on this earth we are going to live the life that we are called to live. We can't do it. But Jesus did. And so because of his righteousness, we are then credited as adopted into his family. We are credited with Jesus' righteousness. But we still have that that issue of sin, all of these Ten Commandments that I have broken uh, unashamedly to to huge extent. How are we going to deal with that? Can God just forgive that? And the answer is no, we can't, because if God were just to forgive our sins and say, hey, it's okay," he would no longer be a just God. If we were to go into a courtroom and someone were to came and and taken our vehicle and then took all the tires and rims off it. I have an old beat up Prius so I don't know why one would do it. But let's just say somebody were to do that and and then they they take all of my belongings and then we have a court date and we go into this court date and then the judge gets up and says, "You know what? You know, I'm feeling pretty nice today. I'm just going to go ahead and forgive everything that you did. You can walk and you know." And then I'm just stuck to deal with the consequences would you say that that's a just judge no we would be very angry at this judge for doing that so for us to think in our minds that we can just say well god just forgive us that's fine just forgive us the answer is no god would no longer be just if he did that so he did something even more mind-boggling and incredible he sent his son to die and to take our sins upon himself. Because he lived the right life, because he was righteous, he was then able to be the perfect sacrifice for us. So Jesus dying on the cross, he did that to take our sins upon him. It even talks about in the Bible something really horrible that isn't preached about much. But it pleased God to crush his son so that our sins can be forgiven and dealt with. And but it doesn't end there because God was so pleased with his son that he raises him up from the dead and seats him at the right hand of God. And we are just finding out here through Ephesians that we, too, will be raised and we will sit next to God for all of eternity, enjoying the richness of his mercy, the richness of his love and his great love, his immeasurable kindness. And so this is the good news. This is the gospel. If you have heard this message before and you are living in that reality, then this message should bring you joy and excitement. This, we should never get tired of hearing this, no matter how many times you've heard this. And if you've been in a church for a while, you've probably heard this many, many times. But we should always find great joy and satisfaction. There's movies that I've watched 30, 40 times, and I still crack up at the same spots. Uh, we should never get tired of this story. And we should hear it over and over and just rejoice. If you've heard this story, but you never understood it before, you've never quite connected the dots, and this is maybe the first time that you've truly understood this story, then what we find out through the Bible is that we are naturally with a heart of stone. And it's through the Holy Spirit that the heart of stone is turned into a heart of flesh, is what it says in the Old Testament. And that is the Holy Spirit helping us to understand, to receive. That's the faith that we're being given to believe. Faith is just that. It's giving us the ability to believe. And it's not just believing in a fairy tale or believing in something that can't exist. It's actually believing in who Jesus is, believing in what he has done and believing in what he will do. That is the faith. And that's all a gift from God. And so I would encourage you today, if you feel that and understanding that, if you have any questions, please come up to me, come up to, what is it, Dave, uh, our elder here, and we'd love to discuss that and share that with you more, and you can see why we have such great joy and hope because of what Jesus has done. So let's go ahead and, and join together in prayer, and let's just thank God for this beautiful reality this beautiful time that we get to be in his word. Father, we thank you so much for this body of believers we thank you that for this place we thank you for pastor tony for leading these people into a greater and deeper understanding of who you are we're so thankful for your mercy for your grace for your kindness we're so grateful for your love father if there is anybody in here today that does not fully understand who you are and does not understand this gift that we are given father would you right now Just quicken their heart. Would you help them, stir up in them this understanding of who you are and help us as a body of believers come around them to share this good news and to walk in this and together go on mission. Father, I thank you so much for this time. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.